sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple. This week, we are joined by a legend in the sports production and broadcast industry. Tom Rinaldi is a 16-time Sport Emmy Award winner from Fox Sports. When he tells a story, he pulls at our heartstrings. Tom Rinaldi, we are so glad that you are with us. Thanks for joining us on Rabbi on the Sidelines. I told you a bit earlier, Rabbi, I feel terribly underdressed seeing how Natalie attired you are. And also, I'm unworthy to join the lineup that is presented in that very slick open. So I'm going to do my best, though. Well, you are more than worthy because we have been listening to your stories that literally speak to the soul. And the first conversation that we had just a couple of months ago, right after the Super Bowl, I asked you, I said, I'm a rabbi. Should I be delving into the world of sports and connecting that with faith. And tell us what you told me. I was emphatic, wasn't I, Rabbi? I said, absolutely, or something to that degree. I said it immediately uh, for so many reasons. And I think those reasons are broader than any particular denomination or category of faith. They speak to the notion of a collective, of a community, of a belief in something beyond oneself, and of principles and values that we try to navigate our lives by. And sport gives us an amazing canvas to explore those principles and values through narrative. So you often, when you're telling this story, don't necessarily tell the story of a player and where they came from, but you connect it to something usually off the field or off the court that either a player or a coach found meaningful, and then you bring those worlds together. Tell us your process of researching for what um, for the stories that we get to finally see on TV. Well, as you know, Rabbi, whenever you speak to your congregation, whenever you're trying to connect with a group of people, nothing is more effective and inviting than story. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves to hear a story. Whatever moral might be attached to it, whatever lesson perhaps is to be imparted, whatever people might pull from it, it's so much more appetizing and inviting to have it come from the venue of story. And I think that applies to sport too. As much as we're compelled by these incredible events and these games, um, we can point to them across all of sports, indelible moments that fans have experienced. The hardcore and the casual fan still wants to feel a connection to the person on the field, mm -hmm. to the people who are wearing those uniforms, who are going through those moments of competitive gauntlet and challenge. And I think through story, we're able to connect with those, with those athletes and those coaches and the journeys of those seasons in a way that makes us feel like that might not be that different than my own journey. Yes. Or that, wow, as impressive as what this person has done on the field, I now have a broader context of understanding. So let's first talk about the well-known athletes and how you tell their stories. One of them that you had the, I would say, honor or privilege of interviewing after some difficult times was Tiger Woods. He hit a high and he hit a low. And you were the first one to really have him share his story. At that moment, what are you thinking about bringing out in his story that maybe, as you said, the fan wants to know? 
Well, this was after the implosion of Tiger's personal life now, uh, more than a decade ago. And in essence, we did a very short interview, Rabbi. We were the first ones to have the opportunity to speak with him five minutes or so. Um, the only stipulations were that time limit, standing, perhaps yeah. so it would feel less confessional or intimate, and outside for those same reasons. Um, obviously, we agreed to those stipulations because we knew we would be able to ask Tiger anything that we thought was proper and fair. Mm -hmm. But I think the approach to it, Rabbi, really comes, maybe if I could demonstrate with my two hands, yeah. from understanding something that my wife pointed out to me before we did the interview, my wife, Diane. And she said to me, just remember, just before I left to go do the interview, it was done in Florida, we're in New Jersey. She held her two hands up, one hand here and the other here. And what she said to me is, just remember, you're not up here. And he's not down here, right? He's not up here and you're not down here. Approach it as if you are here mm -hmm. in so-called accountability interviews. If you, if you will, for lack of perhaps a more artful term, sometimes the questioner feels as though he or she is entitled to occupy some higher perch mm -hmm. of moral purview. And I don't really think that's the case. I think, in keeping this simple notion in mind and asking questions that are fair and open and ask through an earnest curiosity to gain understanding rather than judgment, that's what I think drove that interview. I remember a lot of people telling me, Rabbi, if you do the interview properly, he'll never speak with you again. Oh, wow. I continue to text with Tiger Woods to this day. And I can tell you when I've gone through some things in my own life, some loss I've suffered in my life, one of the people who has reached out to me has been Tiger Woods. Wow. I love that you said it's about understanding, not judgment. That is a value of faith, right? When people say, uh, actually had a couple of broadcasters on here um, and actually Jeff Passon, ESPN Baseball, lovely, yeah, amazing, terrific, funny terrific guy. reporter. And yeah. Jeff asked me, um, are you going to judge me when I had my headphones on on Yom Kippur services listening to the World Series? And we had an awesome conversation about it's not about judgment. It's actually about understanding. And we, uh, yeah, ab absolutely. We talk about understanding one moment in this country, September 11, 2001, changed our lives, changed my life. I was a sophomore at Columbia University. Um, I was at some of those Mets and Yankees games during those times when we came back. And the question was, do we come back? And you have a very close personal connection to 9-11. We're going to talk about this, your book, The Red Bandana, New York Times bestseller, A Life, A Choice, A Legacy. We're going to play this clip about what it meant to come back into the sports world at that time and how you saw that at that time and how it relates to today. Doers. The question has already been answered. Should we be here? Yes. That given day is joined to this one, bound by respect and remembrance, and shaped in all a day can bring, its possibility and its energy, its passion and its connection, its unity, in all we share and all we are, and the challenge of how we honor then by all we may be 
now. So you said bound with possibility. In our tradition on the high holidays in our new year, we say this phrase in Hebrew. It's Hayom Harat Olam. It means today is the birthday of the world, but if you translate it literally, it means today is pregnant with possibility. What did that mean when you did that clip right there, bringing back college football, when it said, today we must be here? That aired, uh, Rabbi, on the, the 20th anniversary, which just passed of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And for those of us uh, in our generation and the generations beyond us, it's almost incomprehensible to think about a generation <clears throat> having passed right. for whom 9-11 is not a memory, it's history. Mm-hmm. It's not a living experience, it's a lesson. Mm-hmm. And I think in having contemplated and accounted for 20 years that have passed since and the different tributes, the way that each of us carries what happened that day within us, I do think there there really is something to be said for the, the incredible value of what a single given day can bring. Mm-hmm. As we think about all of those people like you, Rabbi, who were five miles north mm-hmm. in Morningside Heights when Flight 175 hit the south facade of, of the South Tower as the second plane. And now people beginning to come to an understanding that this was not an accident, that it was a planned attack. And everything that would unfold, the terrible tragedies that would come from that, the enormity of the loss. But what the day also brought, the incredible acts of heroism Mm -hmm. and selflessness and sacrifice, what the days immediately after brought, this feeling that sadly, Rabbi, I don't think the nation has been able to recapture of a true unity. And with that, a selflessness, a caring, a greater patience, a greater compassion for the person you don't know. Mm -hmm. Because we had all been drawn together in a sense. We had all endured through this terrible cataclysmic event. When we think right now of how unbelievably, inconceivably divided we are over seemingly everything, Mm-hmm. It, it can feel like 9-11 is not two decades ago. It can feel like it's two centuries ago. And that was one of the points of the given day. Sport remains, maybe in a singular sense, other than in church, other than in temple, other than in mosque. It remains this, uh, this venue of, in a way, unity. And, and the feeling of community and a shared experience. The difference being sport by definition, Rabbi, is divisive. Yes. You won and I lost. Right. Nothing, is, nothing can be more stark than that. And yet it has become this wonderful place where people have gathered together, hopefully in a way as a shelter, if not an antidote to so much of the other division that we experience. So let's speak about the value of memory. You spoke about it in that piece. And one of the people that you remembered forever is through this book, New York Times bestseller, The Red Bandana, Wells Crowther. 
my RA at Columbia, her best friend, Joshua Barenbaum of Blessed Memory, was on the top floor of one of the towers and lost his life. And each year I remembered him, even though I never met him in person. And now reading this book, The Red Bandana, it's not just that Wells was memorialized, but you went out and found the people whose lives he saved. And so I want to just share this clip about Wells Crowther, and maybe you can take us through the story of meeting Wells' family and why you decided to share that story and write this unbelievable book. I still weep every day for my son. He was my best friend. I was his best friend. At some point of every day, sometimes in the morning when I'm shaving, and I'm standing in front of the mirror, and I have a 19 that's tattooed over my heart. And I'm looking at that 19, and the memories just come flooding back. But really, I just weep for the loss of his company. He was just such a wonderful friend. What would you do in the last hour of your life? Where would you be? Who would remember it? What would it look like? Maybe it wouldn't look anything like loss, but would be the thread of legacy and the color of honor. So you really speak about that in terms of actually from your book here, chapter 11, what would you do in the last hour of your life? And the same thing in the faith tradition, we're often asked, right? What would you do if today was your last day on this earth? How did you come up with that question to lead into Wells's life? And what was your connection to the Crowther family? Uh, I'll, I'll begin by saying, you know, Jefferson Crowther, Wells' dad, who is just a remarkable man, has passed uh, mm-hmm. in, in the last couple of years. And I remain in touch with Allison, his mom, who is just a living wonder of a person in terms of her strength and her faith. I, I came to know Wells' story through the incredibly talented producer of that piece, Drew Gallagher, who oversees College Game Day now. Mm-hmm. and was a classmate of Wells, oh, who wow. it was a friend, but not the closest friend, and who was determined to tell that story, ultimately choosing to do so, asking me to be a part of it at the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, so a decade ago. Um, Wells, like, again, many of the other stories that the day recounts, was on one of the top floors of the South Tower of the World Trade Center (coughs) after Flight 175 out of Boston collided below him into the sky lobby, cutting a swath between 78 and 84. He made his way down the only functional stairwell. I know you know these beats, Rabbi. And rather than save himself, he led not one but two groups of people from that sky lobby, which was a scene of indescribable horror and loss and death he led two groups of people to the point where he felt they were safe he eventually made his own way down to the lobby and still did not leave he had been a volunteer firefighter as his father jefferson was and went to the mobile command post set up in the center of the lobby of the south tower to try to tell the firefighters there what he had experienced 
The reason we know that is because when his remains were found months later in March of 2002, his were the only civilian remains amidst more than a dozen firefighters. Mm -hmm. I think, Rabbi, the notion that we ask ourselves, what would you do in the last hour of your life or if you Mm. knew this was your last day, um, is such a powerful one. And, and And it's yet so simple. And I know that I ask myself the more specific question in Wells' legacy. Mm-hmm. Would I have done what he did? Right. Even though I'd like to believe I'm raised in, I'm a Catholic, uh, I know about what I should do through the edicts and the principles of the faith that in a flawed way I try to live out. And yet, would I have mm-hmm. laid my life down for someone whose name I didn't even know, mm-hmm. I'd never met before, for a stranger? Would I, in some sense, commit the greatest act of love that one can? And I don't think that I could. Wow. And that was that stayed with me as I talked to Allison and to Jeff and to friends of Wells to try to come to an understanding as best I could what leads to the shaping and making of a character inside a person Mm -hmm. that would allow him to answer that question yes Mm -hmm. when faced with the ultimate test and that's ultimately what led me to write the book actually after reading this book again new york times bestseller the red bandana by tom rinaldi um it's on my notes as my yom kippur sermon this year to ask that question to our congregation what would lead us in that last hour of our day, as you said, a message of love, not of selfishness, but of doing something for the other. And then that relationship to sports, though, right? This is not just a 9-11 book, but his life was a life of sports, Boston College lacrosse, hockey, sort of as a mischievous kid. Um, is there a connection between those two worlds through the, uh, through, through the story of Wells Crowther? I absolutely believe there is, Rabbi. When when the book came out, Peggy Noonan, the uh, columnist for the Wall Street Journal, uh, wrote some kind words about the book and then reached out to Allison, Wells' mom, and asked a question, which is simple but incredibly hard to answer. And frankly, that Allison found almost embarrassing. Peggy Noonan asked Wells' mom, how do you raise a hero? Mm. And her first answer was you don't do it alone and and i just think the humility and truth of that right that you you don't do it it's everyone together mm-hmm. who does mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. sport was one of the institutions that helped shape wells just as the volunteer firehouse was just as his own faith was just as his experiences in family were um and on and on, some of those experiences recounted in the book. All of those are pieces and building blocks that ultimately create the foundation of faith that when called upon in a way, Rabbi, that each of us prays, we will never have to answer, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when he was called upon to answer, he authored mm-hmm. uh, just a pure act of selfless heroism. And that is the same thing in the faith world, that it takes a community. Within our own faith tradition, we, in fact, cannot have a prayer quorum without 10 people. 
nine people doesn't make nine rabbis don't make a difference when the tenth person walks in the door. Each individual is counted and to create that sacredness to uh, to go forward as well. So Wells's story is not unique, but unique within the history of the world. But so many other stories, specifically in the pediatric world, are so influenced by yeah. sports. My own background with a brother of blessed memory who was a quadriplegic. We literally grew up at the feet of Syracuse University sports of basketball, football, of Coach Beheim, Coach Pasqualoni, who's a friend of our family. But we always said it was so much more than sports. And you had this ability to find these stories that allow these teams, specifically within the college football frame, to connect. Here's a story of, uh, I believe, Tyler Trent, uh, or Trent, Trent Tyler. Um, and, no, Ty- Tyler sorry, Trent. Tyler yeah, Trent right. um, Tyler from Trent. Purdue. I just want to share a clip of this, and let's talk about the intersection of faith and sports within this story. Guided by faith and driven by his fandom, not crutches nor chemo sessions stopped Tyler from making sure he'd have <coughs> tickets for the Michigan game last season. He said, Dad, I'm going to go camp out so I can be first in line, so I can have the front row seats. And I said, Tyler, do you really need to do that? And he said, yes, Dad, I need to do it. The head coach, Jeff Brom, was among the first to see him. Did you see a guy dressed in Purdue garb from head to toe, big smile on his face? He didn't tell me his story. Uh, didn't tell me what he was going through. He just had a positive attitude and brought a lot of life to the conversation. I thought it was a one-time thing. I just thought that Coach Brom was coming over to say hi to him, and that would be it. So how do you find a story like this? And I also want to take it to the audience perspective. I turn on the game. I'm looking for a quick halftime show. And then I hear this story, and my, my, my neshama, my soul, is touched. How do you decide to bring this story to the public? And what does it mean both um, for both sides? Well, I think that story, by the way, which ran on game day mm-hmm. and in other venues on ESPN, where I used to work, was produced by the sensational Lauren Stowell, who's just so talented and has such a heart for storytelling. Um, I, I think, Rabbi, one of the reasons, and, and it makes me happy that you would pick that story, I'm honored and humbled that you're showing these clips, is because of your own family experience mm-hmm. and knowing perhaps what that outlet of sport, yes. the common ground that it was able to provide, it, it, no one suggesting that it's a panacea. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's something far more humble and practical. It's mm-hmm. something, it's a gift in a day. It's a gift in a moment. And I think that's what happened for Tyler, who had fought through cancer multiple times. Uh, Tyler passed away. And the reason that he wanted to share his story was, in essence, so that he could give his testimony, not only for his love for his university, but his love for God. And Mm -hmm. he really believed that what sustained him through that season that brought so much, so many good memories to him was his faith mm-hmm. and how that then served his family his dad who you saw his mom kelly his two brothers their faithfulness through losing him and i i, I think it's it's such a powerful message again about believing in something bigger than yourself yes and knowing that you can be of service to that something 
whatever it is, in trying through your testimony to honor your faith, in trying through your presence and your cheer to support your teammates and classmates, whatever that might be. And then, you know, improbably in, a, in the script you can't make up, the day that we showed the story, yes. Purdue ended up facing Ohio State as a massive underdog in West Lafayette and blew Ohio State out. And we interviewed we interviewed Tyler during the game. Uh, he was in a wheelchair. Uh, again, it was really inspiring. And maybe most, Rabbi, was his ability. You could hear a pin drop after these players with this incredible victory mm-hmm. came off into their locker room. They were utterly silent as Tyler Trent addressed them. And they presented the game ball to him. Yep. Just a great, great moment. Actually, I want to share this when they went to his house and had a moment of prayer as a team. So we'll watch this clip. Yes. After yeah. the Boilermakers beat Nebraska September 29th, the team knew what they wanted to do the next day. What's up, buddy? What's up? How are you doing? We got a little gift for our team captain, man. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. This is, uh... We presented the ball to him. It was tough. We just wanted to be there to lift him up and encourage him, and he... Uh, he does that tenfolds for us. We thank you for this uh, time that we just get to spend here together. Mm-hmm. We ask for healing in your name. Mm-hmm. Amen. To see the team literally pray bedside for Tyler is in a moment, I mean, just a moment of intersection of sports and faith, but realizing, like you said, the actions and the faith. I've heard you use this phrase multiple times in the stories that you tell, faith and fandom. I love that. I wish we had that within our own religious communities. Faith and fandom go hand in hand together. I also think, Rabbi, again, you're, you've <laughs> done such a wonderful job in curating these clips and showing them uh, to set up our conversation. I also think that there's there's something already wired into a team that mm-hmm. understands that it's a collective, that it's a communal experience. And the same can be said for a faith community, that within communities of faith, there's already a wiring there that understands I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. I am about and for others as much as myself. And that's why as much as these men strong and vital and in the peak of their vitality, that they come to this house, they take a knee and surround this bedridden classmate who is fighting for his life. Mm-hmm. They do that, I think, naturally, both buoyed by their faith and by understanding that it's with and for the other. So I want to share one other story and then ask a question that's actually going on in the Supreme Court right now, which is the Kennedy case of praying and how that comes into play right now. This is uh, Najee Harris from, I believe, uh, Alabama and a young boy in Alabama who uh, loved the tide. Braxton's fight reached the Alabama program (laughs) and a few players reached out, including running back Najee Harris. Hey Braxton, this is Najee Harris. Heard you're going to be spending a little time at the hospital. Just want you to know that we're thinking about you and hope everything goes well. Roll Tide. These kids really look up to you and uh, and you can play, you can be a helping hand to them. What tips did you give them? I said you do you and most of the time when you do you, we got it. (laughs) 
So you do you. Uh, that's pretty deep stuff for an eight-year-old Braxton. Tell us Braxton's and, story. Uh, uh, Braxton, who was going through a fight through a, a very rare cancer, again, a family of very deep faith surrounding him. Um, that story actually began with Coach Saban reaching out uh, and getting on the phone with Braxton and Braxton telling Coach Saban, uh, who by many definitions would be considered to be the greatest coach in the history of that sport, that he needed to run Najee in the upcoming game. Right. Like, are you going to run Najee? He does. Najee ends up having a great game. Five times uh, Braxton, five. Yeah, Braxton passed just uh, less than two months ago. Oh, and wow. I have Ooh. remained in, in touch with his family, which is a remarkably strong and faithful family. His father is just, again, like Allison Crowther, is just a, an absolute living wonder of a man. And to get an idea of having suffered this loss, Rabbi, all of his philanthropic efforts have only increased mm-hmm. to now help the next child, mm-hmm. the next family. Mm-hmm. who might have to go down this terribly difficult path that Braxton's family has gone down. And again, I I believe that that selflessness, that is a byproduct of having a faith yes. and believing in and knowing that it's not just for you. Yes, 100%. I'm, my memory is spinning right now of the times that we were courtside in the carrier dome. And even to this day, after five years that my brother has passed, when the ACC tournament comes on, the text from family around the world, do you remember this? Do you remember when, when you see Coach Beheim, our good old friend, yeah. the budget on the sidelines, the stories that they don't see on TV, that you bring out from these coaches, from Les Miles, from Nick Saban, right? Not at the press conference, but of their heart and soul. To me, that is a sport and the faith connection. Absolutely. And that this is actually the quote of Najee Harris after he has five touchdowns. And, you know, you said like Tyler Trent, all of a sudden Purdue beats Ohio State and they really just kill them. And here in the Najee Harris story, Braxton talks to him and he has five touchdowns. Is that a faith connection that all of a sudden the results is that what do you see in those moments? What's your uh, diagnosis of those situations? I, I think that's that's why we watch <laughs> Rabbi. That's the beauty and the magic of it. We don't know what will happen. It's mm-hmm. it's unscripted. Uh, whether mm-hmm. we believe it's preordained or or written in a book that we're not privy to see yet, that's mm-hmm. for another matter. But I think that the fact that we don't know, we don't have the answer or the script in front of us for how it will turn out. And then afterward, to hear from a player or a coach, more often than not, we don't, what that motivation might have been. Yeah. Uh-huh. What was happening behind the moment that we mm-hmm. all saw and mm-hmm. reveled in. And so many times what's happened behind it or leading up to it is so much more specific and richer and selfless than we really understand. So this is Najee Harris after that game. This has five touchdowns in the game. Scored five touchdowns and got 250 yards. He played awesome. <laughs> all of us as a, as a team and as a university is all uh, rooting for him and cheering for him. And, you know, we, we did dedicate, dedicate that game for him. How would you describe last week? Life-changing. 
life-changing for Braxton. I, I, also I, for and, I, and I will tell you this, Rabbi, you know, Najee Harris, who's now a running back in the NFL, he had a sensational rookie season with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, when Braxton passed, uh, I again, I'd been in touch with the family. I reached back to the Alabama program. Mm -hmm. The next call that was made was to Najee. And sure enough, two days later, uh, his dad reached out to say he'd heard from Najee. Wow. Wow. I just want to take a moment to breathe that in because, as you said, these unscripted stories, and I'll just put a faith aspect into there because it's so true that we actually read uh, in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy that the things that are revealed to us are for us but the mysteries are for God and it's not for mm. us to understand it, but it's for us to live, as you said earlier, within the bounds of possibility within the gray area that it's not for ourselves, but in fact, it is for others, even though that book is not necessarily written yet. I Here, think with, with, with just one other quick point yeah. on Najee, Najee's own story, Rabbi, is certainly worth exploring. He came from a really, really difficult situation in his own childhood. And what he's now doing philanthropically with the platform that he's earned, the venue that he now performs in, is also <laughs> worth people exploring. I want to ask a rabbinic speaking question. Your cadence of speaking is amazing. And it's not fast and furious, but it's calm collected, and I like to say the master of the pause. When you actually tell the story, right? I've written, I've read your words, but I've heard your voice. How does the voice contribute to telling the stories that we see on TV? Well, I think it's a couple of things, Rabbi. Number one, uh, I actually think it's a weakness of mine. It's something that I've tried through my career to get better at, and I need to get better at it still. Because if I write a line that I like, I have to fight against a lack of humility and feeling like I'm going to read this line so you know how good it really is. Mm -hmm. and, and that's awful. It, it, if the line is good, it doesn't need to be hand-delivered in a precious, overwrought way, a way that I still far too often deliver it you know, when I'm able to fashion a line that I think is is good or decent. Having said that, there's a fundamental difference between writing to be read and writing to be heard. Yes. You know this. Yep. And when you stand up again in front of a congregation and you need to captivate and compel and carry along a group mm -hmm. through a particular narrative, that's writing to be heard. Mm -hmm. not writing to be read, which is a yes. solitary experience in your chair all alone where you dictate what the pace and rhythm is as you imagine it, that voice in your head that reads back to you. Mm -hmm. So those are two things that I'm still trying to work out the equation there. I'm actually going to have you speak to all of our bar mitzvah students because when they write their speech, <laughs> I always say, this speech will get you a failing grade in your English class, but an A on the pulpit. And it's so true, that <laughs> distinction between the written word and the word that should be heard. Um, 100%, that, that, that's, it's so true. And so this idea of faith in sports, the private moments versus the public moments. Now it's, in fact, in the public sphere with this Coach Kennedy case, 
going to the Supreme Court. Last week, I had a chance to talk to David Sampson, a podcast of Nothing Personal, uh, uh, very outspoken and just an amazing, uh, amazing person as well. And he shared how freedom versus church and state, how it can work, how it should work, public versus private. What are your thoughts when you see, for instance, somebody kneeling in the end zone or you know, a priest at the end of the bench or a prayer um, in the locker room, as opposed to, as we saw, a team around the bedside of a Tyler. I, I think, listen, whenever anything is happening in a public sphere, it's there to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. And whether the intent, whether the intent of the player or the coach or the team is to send a given message or signal, it will do so by very definition of the fact that the venue is public. Mm-hmm. But I, what I don't see, and and I think sometimes I, 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 I don't really understand the to a degree the uproar over is no one. I don't. I've yet to find an athlete, no matter how impassioned she is about her faith, that has ever suggested anything remotely draconian or authoritarian about how that faith should be interpreted, mm-hmm. or. That if you do not accept my principle, my faith life, you are somehow lesser. I, I just, I've yet to encounter that coach or athlete. I see a coach or athlete again, trying to practice that faith in, in a way which he or she believes is consistent with her values mm-hmm. in a public forum, but in no way saying, and so if you don't do this, you are wrong. You are mm-hmm. lesser. You are other. Uh, I don't, I've never encountered that. And yet I think sometimes there are people who, for whatever reason, feel as though they're somehow being uh, indoctrinated or that there's a, that there's a forcefulness through the gesture, right? Accept it or don't, but in Mm -hmm. no way is it a verdict upon how one interprets it. It is a message and signal from the person who takes that knee about his faith. Yeah, right. That's how I take it. Well, I love that. I love that. And I think that interpretation gives space, in fact, for all and not necessarily imposing it upon the other. I, I just, again, I don't think it's about imposition. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it's about inculcation. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I just don't. I, I think it's about recognition and celebration. That's mm-hmm. how it strikes me. So you tell the stories of people. I'm basically in that same type of business in the faith world. And somebody asked a question just now of how do you get the trust of the people, stories that you are telling to make sure that you're telling that not just accurately, but with a sense of you keep mentioning the word humility. I think I, you know, when it took me too long, probably to find these three uh, North stars, if you will, or these three guiding principles, at least for me, Rabbi, but in any story of depth, in any personal story or journey that I'm, I'm trying to chronicle, I try to follow these three principles. The first you already mentioned is accuracy. Mm-hmm. The story that NBC News did about the wonderful story they did about you, you know, you and your family, mm-hmm. no matter how well intended, if there, if someone's name was wrong Mm -hmm. that would be the first thing that would strike you and that you would note right at the end of the day accuracy is essential Mm -hmm. to get 
the facts as they as best they can be known to get those facts right is really important. The second is empathy. Again, it, it goes back to my wife's hand yes. gesture there and realizing that we're just here together. And the third, which is really undervalued, is curiosity. Mm. And this took me a long time to recognize that too often, Rabbi, I had my questions on my pad and in the midst of what might be a thoughtful, revealing, uh, intriguing answer, I wasn't listening anymore. Right. I was already looking down at my next question right. as opposed to having earnest curiosity. Because if I don't, how on earth should I expect the subject to continue to share? Mm -hmm. So to me, mm -hmm. it's about accuracy, empathy, and curiosity. I love that. In fact, I asked a bunch of uh, elementary school students a couple of years ago when I was sharing my brother's story with them and his artwork. And I said, what does it take to create art? And this third grader raised their hand and they said, you know, a paintbrush or this or that. And they said, creativity, innovation, and soul. And I said, wow, you nailed it. A third grader who said creativity, wow. innovation, and soul. And I think that art lends to the storytelling of what I've watched and seen both through your written word and through your spoken word as well. I don't know that I live up to that, but uh, maybe someday I can meet that third grader. I'll learn a lot. <laughs> We are so thrilled that Tom Rinaldi, Fox Sports, author of New York Times bestseller, The Red Bandana, has joined us on Rabbi on the Sidelines, a man of humility, a man of faith, and a man of soul. Tom, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining, and we look forward to being in touch. What a great conversation. I'm honored that you had me. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you.